0: Why don't you turn to Exodus 25, please? Exodus 25. So as you can see, we're going to do the rest of the book tonight, 25 to 40. That's um, almost half of the book. As you can see, we've titled this message, This is Why God Saved You. I've noticed that we often know what we're saved from, but we aren't always good at knowing what we're saved for. So Israel, let's take an example of Israel in this Exodus story. God saved them from Egypt, from slavery. What did he save them for? We're really quick at knowing what his salvation was there from slavery, but what is this for? Where is this going? Some of us might say the promised land. I'm not sure that that's actually the highest goal God had for them. What's the goal, the highest goal God has for you. If your salvation depends on hell, then you probably don't know what you're saved for. What I mean is a lot of us know, and we come to Christ this way at the beginning is all I know is I don't want to go to the bad place. And so we ask God to save us from that bad place. And if a fire and brimstone sermon about you're going to hell, be careful when you make a left turn out here tonight, because you might might be your last. Um, if that kind of teaching brought you to Christ, fantastic. You wanted to be saved from hell. Um, a preacher might have promised that Christ will give you satisfaction, because you have been turning to other things for satisfaction or you've been stuck in some sort of addiction or in some sort of lifestyle that you knew wasn't leading you anywhere. So you came to Christ. Well, you know what he saved you from. You came to him because you wanted to be saved from something. But very rarely do I ever hear someone say I was saved for this. Now that's not wrong because often there's a need we respond to, to get saved. And then we learn what we're saved for. But sometimes we don't ever get there. And the question is, will Israel get there? They know they're saved from Egypt, but do they know what the point of this wilderness journey is? And you might remember, we've been looking, we have been saved too from something. God's taking us through a wilderness. And ultimately we want to grow and be fruitful like in the promised land. But some of us are not getting there or we've been there and we're jumping back into the wilderness And this is the Christian that doesn't exactly have a lot of fruitfulness in their life. They don't really know what they're here for. I'm saved from this and I've got Christ, but I don't really know what I'm doing with all that right now. We want to get out of the wilderness and we want to know what we're saved for. So what we've looked at in Exodus is what does Israel do through the wilderness? Well, after they're saved, first thing they do is they get baptized through the red sea. Then they sing about God's victory in the past, right now, and in the future. We do that too. Every week we sing. Then they take communion, which is what Jesus would later call it. Um, it was manna they were gathering from the wilderness that God was providing for them. Jesus then said, hey, I'm that manna now, eat from me. And so we realize that the cross needs to be the center of our journey. Taking communion reminds us of that. Then we saw Moses holding his hands up in prayer, and as his hands were held up, Israel prevailed against this oppositional force, Amalek, keeping them out of the promised, keeping them from moving on toward the promised land. And Moses couldn't keep his hands up unless he had Aaron and Ur helping him hold his hands up. As long as the hands were up, Israel won. And because of Aaron and Ur's help, his hands were kept up and they won. We need each other. We need fellowship. We need dinner time discussion. We need prayer for one another to keep our hands up, lest we be overrun by the enemy and blame each other. So we need singing. We need communion in the cross. We need prayer and fellowship. Last week, oh, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, last time I taught, um, we looked at them at Mount Sinai, God's voice speaking to them, giving them his word, the ten words they call it. We call it the Ten Commandments. Um, we, need, we need someone teaching us God's word. We need sermons. And more than that is that we need not just the voice of Moses telling us what God said. We need God's voice himself. We need to be in tune with that, hearing that. And then we learned that we need to look out for idolatry, the golden calf. And now tonight, finally, at the end, Tonight we find out why God saved us from Egypt or from selfishness or from addiction or from pain or from purposelessness from yourself. So, does your salvation depend on hell? Tonight I hope that our salvation depends on God. And that, no, that's not a statement. I don't need emails later. But that if hell did not, if hell did not exist... Would you still see a point in the gospel? Many people wouldn't. I've heard the discussions. Well, if there was no hell, then why are we saved? If that's your answer, we need to get further. So I hope to tonight. So, why did God save you? Let's go to Exodus 25. So next is 25. We begin, if you've ever read through Exodus in your devotions on your own, you've probably quit somewhere from this point, somewhere in the middle towards the end because it gets very repetitive. We see this in 25.1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the, contribu- the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them: gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple scarlet, yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices and anointing oil for the fragrance incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, and for the ephod and for the breastplate. Now a lot of that stuff they got from the Egyptians as they left Egypt. It's really cool. Thanks for funding our sanctuary. Um, but some of it they also used to make the golden calf last week. See, stuff is neutral. It's how you use it. It's what you're using with, doing with it and what you're using it for. And now God's going to redeem what they messed up. And he's going to turn not only Egypt's gold, which was gained by slave labor, and not only the gold that once made a golden calf but now, this gold is going to make a sanctuary for God. That's cool. That's salvation. That's redemption. Now, in verse eight. So, with this stuff, let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is the whole purpose. Let them make me a sanctuary. Not so that I can look better than the other gods. Not a bigger one than you ever saw in Egypt. Just make me a sanctuary. He's going to show them how, and he's going to have a specific outline for it. But let them make it so that I can come to them. So that I can be present in the midst of their camp. So that I can walk among them and speak to them. Wow. This is God wanting to dwell with us on earth now it goes on and in verse 9 we see exactly as i show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture so you shall make it so god's going to show moses exactly how to make this it's going to be a tent uh, a really elaborate tent so that it can be portable as they move toward the promised land so This tabernacle is a tent in which God's presence will dwell. Priests will keep it pure, and the people come to worship God there. Okay? That's what this is. So we see uh, some—you can read this for—if you need to fall asleep tonight, read through this. Uh, 25, 26, and all the way through 30, um, 31. And then—so 25 through 31, you have explanation. This is what I want it to look like. But turn your attention to 29, 45— 29.45. And we're going to see reiterated what has already been said, but we need to see the purpose of this tabernacle. 29.45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh, the I am, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's what they were saved from that I may dwell among them, what they're saved for. Saved from misery, oppression, slavery, purposeless existence in Egypt, so that saved for my dwelling among them. So there are 16 chapters here. From chapter 25 to 40, we've got 16 chapters. 13 of these chapters deal with how to make this tabernacle. That just sounds like facts, so let me put this in perspective. 13 chapters for the tabernacle. You go to Genesis 1, and you read about the creation of the heavens and the earth. You have one chapter. Zero that in. On day 4, when God makes the sun, moon, and stars... You have three words, and the stars. Now, I am not a scientist, nor am I even close to a lay scientist. But every now and then, I'm fascinated with what science shows us, especially cosmology. The stars are an infinite study of wonder. And Genesis 1, well, I mean, it would have been great to hear God's commentary on the cosmos. It would have been fantastic. But we're limited to... He made the stars. Oh. So if I'm writing the Bible, that is a lot longer. That's the 13 chapters. The tabernacle is the three words. Make me tent. I can't make them three, but... <laughs> but this is what we see very interesting, is that the Bible, God is wanting to communicate something different that's important. Like, we might think this is important, stars and wow, and, but God says no... This tabernacle is the most important thing because this is where I am going to reconnect with the humans who ran away from me. So the Garden of Eden quickly follows the creation account in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, we learn that God puts the humans in this garden in Eden. And there we discover interesting things. God walks with the humans in this garden There's union. There's no separation. It's not like heaven is up there and earth is down here. They're together. There's harmony. That's what makes it delightful. The Jews call this shalom, just complete harmony and peace. God walks with them. Adam and Eve are given tasks to serve serve the garden and to conserve the garden. They are the ones making it beautiful, keeping it beautiful, doing this for God, making it as best as it can be, f- figuring out the potential and all of this stuff and bringing it out and advancing it. There's a tree of life where they can come and keep communing with God and get his life for them so that they can keep going. They can keep learning how to do this. There's gold, there's onyx, there's bdellium. I don't even know what one of those stones are, but it's supposed to be really um, valuable. And apparently this land is full of these kinds of stones. There are lamps, sun, moon, and stars there. And in other words, everything's coming together and it's there and humans and God dwell together. But this gets ruptured because the humans decide "Mm, the tree of knowledge looks better than leaning upon God's life. So we're going to do it our way. The tree of knowledge is when we figure things out for ourselves. And so they go for it. And Genesis then becomes a story which started off with God dwelling with humans. And as you go through Genesis, that connection gets further and further and further. Cain kills Abel. And then Cain's offspring are having multiple wives and they're killing little boys for making fun of them. And then we get to the flood where there's this gross relationship between these sons of God and these daughters of men and these weird children are being born. And God says there's violence everywhere. The intention of man is continually violent all the time. And he has to wipe the slate clean. And then even after that happens, you have the Tower of Babel and the Tower of Babel is basically saying, we will call God what we want God to be. You might remember that teaching a while ago. You can go check that out again. So that was this big rebellious moment. Then the nations are scattered. And then finally we get some people that God's picking. And there's, there's a couple of occasional contacts between God and these people. But then Genesis ends, started in a garden with God and humans together. And it ends with Israel, these people that are supposed to be gods in Egypt. Far away from God's intention. Very far away from a garden. In fact, Genesis is so dramatic. This is its point. What begins in a garden ends in a grave. Jacob uh, dies at the end of Genesis. And they bury him and it closes. Garden to grave. And then Exodus happens and we find God's people are in the worst place ever. So then God saves them from the slavery. And then he's bringing them to this point, the tabernacle. Let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell with them. We've come full circle, in other words. What began in the garden, and, and there's this big separation, is now closing the gap again here in the sanctuary. There's hope. And that's how Exodus closes the sanctuary, the tabernacle built. God enters into it, and the book closes It's almost as if the entire Bible is in miniature from Genesis to Exodus. Almost as if. So, 13 of 16 chapters all about how to make this thing. Whew, boring reading, but do you see why this is beautiful? This is everything to God. So, after the golden calf incident in chapter 32... Chapter 33, Moses is making intercession for them. In chapter 34, God forgives them and says, all right, let's start over. New tablets of the Ten Commandments. Then chapter 35, we get back to the tabernacle. Chapter 35 is where they actually start constructing it. So before we saw God saying, this is what I want it to look like. And you read that and some of it's like, oh, that's interesting. And they're like, I can't picture that. and like, I don't get why I'm doing this a few chapters later. So you get to chapter 35 thinking, all right, cool, now it's going to happen. No, it's almost verbatim to the instruction. Basically, God to do this, and then these chapters say, and they did this. And rather than just saying, see those chapters beforehand, it just repeats all of it. So by this time, you're, you're like, God, why? And then so you skip to Leviticus, and then you give up, because Leviticus is our next book. So, so okay. So in chapter, at the end of 35, we see it, you see it in verse 3. It begins, to being, it begins being built. Chapter 36, we see Bez and Oholiab. Bezalel. Um, we could call them Bez and Co. Bez and Company or something. They get to work. The Spirit of God's upon them. And they are responsible for making this place beautiful. Um, chapter 37, now we start to see the technical aspects. So they start making furniture. You see the the Ark of the Covenant at the beginning of 37. Then you see they're making the table. Then the lampstand. And then they're making the altar of incense. And then the burnt offering altar. And then the basin where they wash their hands. And then the outer courts. And then in chapter 39, the priestly garments. Um, So now we're dealing with the people that will be in there. And then chapter 40 God's presence comes and fills the tabernacle. Now, what I want you to see, and you can look at this on your own, because it's just a lot of chapters to read, so we're not gonna read through it, but if you starting in chapter 37, make the ark. I need you to see this pattern. Make the ark. So the ark was this box in which on top of it was put was called the mercy seat, and the mercy seat had two cherubim facing each other. And it was there that God would dwell between the cherubim. This was his throne on earth. Then they were to put this in a room. So they were to veil it off so no one could see it. And then with this ark there, and this, it's veiled off, they're to put the tabernacle over this. So the ark is in a room within the tabernacle. So inside this room is the ark. Inside the tabernacle, which the Ark is in, you have a couple other things. You have a table with bread, 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel. You have this lamp, decorated like a tree made of solid gold with seven lights. And you have an altar of incense where priests would give incense. That's inside. Outside, you have an altar where you burn animals and a basin where the priests would necessarily cleanse themselves from the butchering process. And then you would have gates for the outer courts. So what I need you to see is that 37 begins with them making the ark, the thing in the very center of the tabernacle, the holiest place of all. In fact, it's called the Holy of Holies. Next, they build the table, which is just outside the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle. Then they build the lampstand, then the altar of incense. Next, you see in chapter 38, they make the burnt offering, the altar for the burnt offering. So now we step outside the tabernacle and we're building the altar outside and then the basin outside and then the walls for the outer court outside. So why am I showing you all this detail? Because you need to see the movement. They're building this from the inside, from the most sacred part to the outside. Now we get to chapter 40, this is going somewhere and we see what Moses does in 40 verse 1 the Lord spoke to Moses saying on the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in it the screen or, let's put in it the ark of the testimony that's the very center thing where God's presence would be then the screen and the veil, verse four, you shall bring in the table and arrange it. You shall bring in the lampstand and its lamps. And verse five, you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door for the tabernacle. What are you seeing? We're working inside out the same exact pattern we just saw in the other chapters. Now Moses is putting it, God's telling him he's going to put it all together in the same way. Okay. Verse six, you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. That's the outer courts. Okay. God's saying, look, you guys made all this stuff in order from inside, outside. Now you're going to put it together from inside, outside. (laughs) Okay. Now verse nine, we're going to see them anoint all of this stuff. You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And then they're also going to take Aaron and his sons who are going to be the priests and anoint them. So anointing sounds like this really like scary thing. I'm going to anoint you. Whoa, get away from me, creep. Um, but all, what it is, is the Jews would take oil generally or some sort of blend of incense and they would put it on something. Now, what it meant was this is now marked to anoint something is to set it apart for special use. It's not marked. So this fork, let's say, in the tabernacle is not going to be used for your McDonald's Happy Meal. Uh, we don't eat those, do we? Happy Meals? That's a kid thing. Um, Big Mac. It's not going to be used for that because it's going to be used only for whatever relates to the worship of God. So this fork isn't going to be passed around to use whatever. Your toothbrush. I mean, really, if you think about it, it's, in a sense, anointed. You have designated that device for your mouth, not for the floor or the toilet. Now, retired brushes can do that. Or your partner's brush. (laughs) But we use those for one purpose. We don't... Well... We don't intentionally swap brushes with another person either, but sometimes you put it down like, oh, that was the other color. I won't tell anyone. (laughs) So that's the idea is that they're putting this on all this stuff to say, this is used for meeting with God. This is not just standard stuff. Okay. Then in verse 16, we see Moses does it. This Moses did according to all that Yahweh, the I am commanded him. So he did in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Now it goes through how Moses erects it. He puts down the foundation, puts up the skins, the actual tent itself. Then what he does is he goes in and he puts it all together from inside out in the same order. Then in verse 33, skipping down, forty thirty three, he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar. So that's the last part, right? The outer courts. And set up the screen on the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Does that sound familiar? In 39, verse 32... read this. Thus, all the works of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. In 39.43, and Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done. Then Moses blessed them. And then what we just read in 40.33, so Moses finished the work. This is selections, echoes from God's creating the heavens and the earth. So God beheld it was very good. And then it says that God blessed them. And it says that he finished creating. Let me just show you just the subtle echoes here. Um, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. You, this in Exodus, it's just putting tabernacle in place of heavens and earth. It's the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he'd done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And you see there that he finished his work which he'd done. So some scholars point out that there's intentional echoes there. Further, there are seven times here in the instructions, um, the whole building of the tabernacle comes together in seven phases. You know, if you, I know you're turning around a lot, so you can just kind of just grab this. Twenty-five, one, the very beginning of this, it says, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses. All the way down at 30, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses. 30, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses. 30.22, the Lord said to Moses, 3034, the Lord said to Moses, 31 verse one, the Lord said to Moses, and finally, 31 verse 12, the seventh time, the Lord said to Moses, and that's it. You see that phrase, the Lord said to Moses seven times. There are seven times when God tells Moses, this is how you're going to build this. So as God made the heavens and the earth in seven days, Moses is giving seven steps and putting this tabernacle together. And then it's done. And Moses says it's finished. And he beholds it and he blesses it. And the seventh, the Lord said to Moses, where this is thirty-one twelve, is where God talks about the Sabbath and how they are to keep the Sabbath. Because the seventh day is the day God rested and commanded the Sabbath. So there are intentional echoes here of the creation that Moses is building a tabernacle, which is actually meant to be a new little cosmos, a new little universe where here, like in the original creation, God and humans will be one. There's not going to be distinction or separation. He's going to dwell with them, heaven and earth together in this spot, because here in the tabernacle, there is no sin of separation. Now, the camp might have its problems, but that's why there exists this little miniature Eden right there in the middle of the camp so that they can come to him. Furthermore, God walked in the garden. We were told that in Genesis 3.8. Leviticus 26.12 tells us that God says, I will walk in their midst. Same word. When it says that God created the sun, moon, and stars, the Greek word, uh, Hebrew, excuse me, the Hebrew word there is the exact same word that is used to talk about the lights on the lampstand. They're little sun, moon, and stars. They're lamps. Speaking of the lampstand, it was carved as a tree. One piece of gold with a stem and six branches to make seven lights with almond blossoms on it. This is supposed to be, there was a tree of life there. There's going to be life here. And the golden, the, the precious stones in, in Eden, the gold, the onyx, the bedelium, these are stones that were put on the breastplate of the high priest and stones that were used in the construction of the tabernacle. And Adam and Eve were to work and keep the garden. Those two words together only show up one other time in the Bible, and it's in Numbers where it talks about the work of the priests in the tabernacle. Adam and Eve were priests in the garden. Now we have priests in this new garden, this new tabernacle. The Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, was moving over the waters at creation, and then God spoke light into being. Here the Ruach of God comes on um, uh, Eli... Uh, uh, what was his name? What did we call him? Uh, Bez, Bez, Bez and Company. It says that the Spirit of God comes upon them so that they can do the work, the Ruach of God. And now the work is happening. We have all of these echoes and connections to the original creation in Eden because that's the point. Brothers and sisters, we were saved for this Edenic garden communion with God, which now takes the form of a tabernacle, which then takes the form of a human body called Jesus. And John 1.14 tells us that Jesus tabernacled among us The word became flesh and tabernacled. In other words, the meeting place of God in this tabernacle, which is an extension of that garden where there's union, is now being replicated in the son of God, Jesus, so that when we come to Jesus and we spend time with Jesus, we are in the tabernacle. We are where union of the human and divine meet, which is why Jesus has two natures. It's not meant to be a rational complexity. How is he got it? It's meant to show that God and man are together in a person and can be together in us when we come to Jesus. That this is where the fruit is happening, the promised land, the garden. Why John uh, Paul says that you have the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are bearing those fruits. Eden is blossoming around us because the tabernacle is coming together in our midst. Jesus is that meeting place. And then when Jesus dies, rises from the dead, and then ascends into heaven, he promises his disciples that as proof that I went up to the throne of my Father, I will then descend upon you, the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, that happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon the first believers of Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon those who believe after and after and after. So when Moses puts this thing together, we read the last part of Exodus 40. So Moses finished the work. Jesus too on the cross said it is finished. And then in 4034 we read the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh the I am the Lord filled the tabernacle. Of course, from the inside out. God's glory comes from the inside out. Friends, we need our tabernacle to be erected so that the spirit and presence of God can come and fill, starting with our holy of holies, your soul from the inside out. We run around trying to make our lives from the outside in. We're trying to be the best at our profession or the best at friendships or relationships. We're trying to be the best person we can be in whatever context it is. We're trying to do good works. We're trying to do, be the best Christian. We're trying to do all these things and we constantly think outside, outside. Get all of this together together. But what we learn in the tabernacle with this inside-out construction is that it's not getting our place proper that's going to fix things. It's getting presence inside that's going to fix things. And so, yes, we're saved because we say, I want heaven over hell. But are we at the place where we say, I want God over heaven? Because here's the thing. Heaven is only heaven because God's presence. And if his presence was in hell, destroy your terminology because you got it wrong. It's his presence that matters. Wherever he is, that is where we need to be. That's where we want to be. But the question is, have we arranged our lives in such a way from the inside out that we can be filled with his presence? We cannot keep looking at our surroundings and tinkering with them and saying, "When I get this right, then I'll be right." Nor what that leads to then is my manipulation over people, over situations, my frustration when what I'm trying to do doesn't happen, and my backlash when people say things to me that they shouldn't be saying because that's ruining my plan. When we live outside in, we become monsters. We become ugly but when we're able to just let things be around us and not get stressed out and uptight over it, because we're working on getting the internal life together so that the presence of God can fill us just making space, just making space, just get the Holy of your Holy of Holies from the depth of your being, get the spirit ready to receive the spirit of God. Let the soul be full and let the body then exuberate the glory that's coming from his presence. If we get the power within, we will get things right without. This inside-out movement, and it takes all the stress off. I don't have to get uptight. I don't have to get frustrated. I don't have to get impatient. I just have to let the Spirit of God fill and flow. That's what Moses does And so the cloud fills it. And it was filled so much that Moses for the moment couldn't even enter. So brothers and sisters, this moment when God's glory fills this tent, like we said, is replicated in Jesus and then is passed on to us when the Holy Spirit comes upon us upon salvation. What we need to learn then is that you and I are tabernacles. We are our portable, moving, going around the world tents where God and you are united and we're trying to let others get that taste of the presence of God. But it must be from the inside, outward. I don't make people love Jesus. I have to just receive the love of Jesus within myself. And then as that keeps happening, it begins. As the cloud filled the tabernacle and then it overflowed from there so Moses can even enter it, it comes to us and then through us. We must stop thinking about, well, if I got... We put rules on ourselves. And brothers and sisters, we would be so much better if we did less rules and more, let the presence of God fill me from the inside out. The law of God was put inside the Ark of the Covenant. There in the Holy of Holies. That's what we must do. The Bible is not this outside-in thing where it's like a rule book. Okay, I'll just try to form my life around this. The point of that is it needs to get into your Holy of Holies. It must be ingested. Everything we do, prayer must get to the center of us, not just be about the people and things around us. Everything must get inside. And if we get that, it won't matter if your tabernacle's in the wilderness or if it's in paradise or if it's surrounded by Amalek or some other enemy or by friends and family because the presence of God is constant. That is what we need. And that is why God saved you is so that this presence can meet in your life, so that you can have peace, love, and joy, and calm everywhere that you go. That's why he saved you. He wants to dwell with us. And we are the ones that keep pushing that possibility away. Now let me get my life together first. He just wants in. Just set up a little space for him. The rest will get built in due time, this first, then outward.